this evening will be in Luke chapter 2, so let me invite you to take your Bible and turn there with me. Luke chapter 2. If there is one job that you could do for the rest of your life, maybe too late for that, but maybe think back to when you were young and you had choices like that, what would it be? Maybe you had aspirations to play sports or to work at an ice cream shop or to work in an amusement park, things that all sound very intriguing, at least to me. But uh, many of us look at these professions and imagine all the pleasures that come along with, with working at a job like this. But what happens when something that you longed for with great desire, like a job that you were anticipating, now becomes ordinary and common? Is that possible? That over time you fail to appreciate the value of what you're doing. You don't really uh, appreciate how much that you once longed for that job and how many people... Uh, currently long to have your job um, and the joys that that you used to expect now are are just have turned into a mundane exercise the extraordinary has given way for the mundane and i think the same thing can happen when we think about our life in christ at one time our relationship with god seemed exhilarating and full of prospect but over time if we don't properly reflect on what a relationship with God really means, then we can quickly lose sight of the great treasure that we have in knowing the eternal God, the God of the universe. Jesus is in many ways a Jewish, a Jewish boy who was born and raised with fairly ordinary set of circumstances. And his young life was not marked by miracles. The first miracle that is recorded was when Jesus was an adult. And so you don't have a childhood that kind of sticks out like, wow, this is an amazing childhood and teenage years that this young man went through. He would have looked like and acted like many of the other young boys his age. And surprisingly, his parents can even lose sight of who he is. And we'll talk about that here as we go through the last part of chapter 2. So I'm going to read the first section of our text for tonight, and then we'll, we'll read the second section later. All right, so let me begin reading in chapter 2 with verse 21. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. This is the Word of God. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. In this passage, chapter 2, verses 21 to 52, we see two main points. And and they are, Jesus is set apart for the work of God as a baby. That's the section we just read. And then Jesus is set apart for the work of God as a young man. That's verses 39 to 52. So Jesus is set apart for the work of God. We begin with uh, just an ordinary occurrence that would happen with every Jewish boy in verses 21 to 24, and that is this circumcision and naming followed by a consecration at the temple. Verse 21 records for us the circumcision and naming. A Jewish couple was by the law required to circumcise their son on the eighth day, according to Leviticus 12.3. And so they do. And they name him. The only thing that's out of the ordinary about this naming of this child is that they know what his name is going to be because the angel told him, told them what to name uh, him. Remember, uh, the angel told Mary in chapter 1, verse 31, and also... Uh, an angel told Joseph the same thing in Matthew 1.21. And the reason for this specific name is important because his name means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Or as Matthew 1 says, He will save His people from their sins. Kind of the fuller explanation of what His name means. So, uh, besides the naming of it, the, everything else is pretty normal. This is when this would take place, the circumcision and the naming would happen around the same time. And then verses 22 through 24, more ordinary and expected circumstances. You have the consecration at the temple. Jewish women followed the Old Testament law, and when they did, they recognized that they were defiled by the birth of a child. And so they would be ceremonially ceremonially unclean for 40 days after the delivery of a baby boy, and then another 33 days after the, the delivery of a baby girl. And most likely the reason for this uncleanness was the loss of blood during the delivery, which symbolizes, as we studied in the book of Leviticus, the loss of what? Loss of life, right? The, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So at the end of these 40 days, the Jewish mother was to go to the temple to, to become ceremonially clean. And so they go likely from Bethlehem there to Jerusalem, which is about a six-mile trip, and notice what Mary brings with her in verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice, this is how you would make atonement, this is how you would become ceremonially clean, you would offer a sacrifice. According to what was said in the law of the Lord, the end of verse 24, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they make this trip and and, uh, and they offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now turn to Leviticus chapter 12 and we'll see what this means. 
How can we put this sacrifice in context? And I know we didn't. It wasn't too long ago that we studied Leviticus, but but even I had to go back and and be reminded about some of these sacrifices. And so I think it'd be helpful for us to just um, just look back here at Leviticus 12. Let me begin reading in verse two, and you'll see the sacrifices that are necessary for a woman following birth, the birth of their child. Speak to the sons of Israel, verse 2, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. We saw that in in Luke 2.21. Verse 4, Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. So this is the 40 days I was talking about. And she shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks as in her menstruation. And she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove dove for a sin offering. And then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is a law for her who bears a child, whether male or female. So this is what an Old Testament couple, remember this is prior to the time of Christ's sacrifice being finalized, that, that the Old Testament law is still in place for this Jewish couple. And so this is what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to... Uh, they were supposed to recognize this period of, of impurity and then when the time of purification was over, the days of purification were over, there was time to come to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And so what would a woman bring as a sacrifice for her, for her cleanliness in, in order to clean her? What was it according to verse 7? Okay, a one-year-old lamb and a... Uh, sorry, verse 6 a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So there's two offerings that need to be made on behalf of the woman for her uncleanness, a one-year-old lamb and a, a turtle dove or a, a pigeon. Okay? But notice, verse 8, but if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Turn back to Luke chapter 2 now. And, and look again at verse 24. Notice what she brings. Now, a typical woman would bring a one-year-old lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon, but notice what she brings. The end of verse 24. A pair of turtle doves. To offer a sacrifice, verse 24, at the end of the verse, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What does this tell us about Jesus' family tells us that they were abjectively poor. They, they, they were people of abject poverty. And, uh, and so they bring the, the least amount that they possibly can, not because they're not concerned about the law. This was completely legitimate. It's just that they didn't have uh, the income to, to be able to provide uh, a one-year-old lamb. So she would come and do that, and she did. And in addition to purifying herself, the Jewish couple would also set the child apart, verse 23, for, uh, for the purposes of God. This was custom that the firstborn would be set apart for God. Now, we need to keep in mind that all children 
belong to God. But what the Old Testament uh, believers would do is that they would set apart the firstborn male according to the law of Moses that would symbolize the fact that all of their children belong to God. That's what verse 23 is talking about. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. He was supposed to be set apart for God's purposes. Jesus obviously is the firstborn male uh, of Mary. And uh, so He is consecrated, set apart, saying, listen, God, we, we know that all, all that we have belongs to You, but we're setting apart this child for Your purposes. We uh, perhaps a similar we have a, a similar analogy today with our offering. We often speak of giving to God out of our first fruits, giving to God out of the first part of what comes in, um, in recognition that all that we have belongs to God. I came across a um, a statement by a, a writer in this book that I'm I'm working my way through, and he said, you know, sometimes we as Christians tend to boast about the things that we have. But the way that we boast about what we have is similar to uh, me coming into the church parking lot with, let's say, a, a Ford Mustang and, uh, and sh- showing off my car and how, how excited I am about this and this is my car. And uh, what you didn't know was that I rented that from the Enterprise on, on 13 Mile. Okay? And, and I just brought it over here. It's not really mine. I'm just renting it. And he said that's basically the same uh, picture that, that we ought to... Re- think about with everything that we have in life. There's nothing that we can boast about. It, it all belongs to God. It, it's not ours to, to boast about. And so, uh, so for, for us, one of the ways that we express our faith to God is we give what our, to God what already belongs to Him. And uh, this is what Mary and Joseph do. So, so far, we really haven't seen anything out of the ordinary besides calling Him Jesus. Uh, but as far as circumcision, the fact that they're naming the child at the time that they do, the purification and the ceremonial cleanness, there's nothing out of the ordinary. But notice what happens next that is, is very much out of the ordinary in verses 25-38. to We see the extraordinary and the unforeseen, verses 25-38. to First, we have the story of, of Simeon, and then second, the story of Anna. So first, the revelation of Christ to Simeon. Simeon, according to verse 25, was looking for the consolation of Israel. Consolation is a word that could also be translated as comfort. The, looking for the comfort of Israel. Now, where would an Old Testament believer uh, read about the comfort of Israel? Any ideas? Yeah, Isaiah chapter 40. If you look in the margin of your Bible, you'll probably see a reference to that. The, the consolation of Israel, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Where it says, Comfort, O oh, oh my people. And then it talks about preparing the way for the Lord. Here comes the Messiah. This is what the Old Testament believer was looking for, particularly those on, on this side of the prophets, would have been looking for the consolation of Israel when God would bring salvation to Israel and to all the nations. We also see some, something extraordinary about this, this man and the circumstances surrounding his, his recognition of Christ. At the end of verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I, I think as we've seen in Luke's Gospel that this just suggests for us that, that what we're about to read is from God. That, that this is something that is designed by God and what Simeon's about to say is from God Himself. Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Or another way of saying 
the Messiah of God. Okay, the Lord, just another way to say God. Christ is just another way to say Messiah. So, the, the Messiah of God. He would not die before he would see the Messiah of God. So, Simeon knows that the Messiah is coming. That he is literally coming to the earth. And he's going to have the opportunity to see him before he draws his last breath. God had revealed this to him. And for the last 400 years, Israel was awaiting this Messiah. Particularly since the time of Malachi's writing, uh, that he had prophesied that the Lord was coming in Malachi 3 and be ready for him. And turn to chapter 3, verse 15, because it, it appears that the whole area of Israel was in a state of eager expectation. Chapter 3, verse 15. Here's John the Baptist's ministry, and, and it, it, Luke records for us in verse 15, Now, while the people were in a state of expectation... And all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. This is what they were expecting. They were in a state of expectation about the Messiah. When is he, when is he going to come? Is this guy the Messiah? And that's what they would ask of John. Are, are you the Messiah? And John, remember, says, I'm not worthy to untie the, thong, the, uh, the thongs of his sandal. And um, so, so we have this revelation of Christ to Simeon. And the people were awaiting his arrival, but particularly Simeon recognized the significance of this child. Verse 27, we see that Joseph and Mary bring him into the temple. So that kind of gives you the background before Jesus and Simeon meet. You have a little bit of background of who Simeon is and what he's expecting. And as he comes into the temple, uh, Joseph and Mary bring, bring him in. Notice verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple, speaking of Simeon. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God. So the fact that Mary was here in this part of the temple suggests to us that this is the court of the women. Remember, the temple is broken up into four main areas. You have at the, at the center, what do you have? What's the most important place? The Holy of Holies, right? The most holy place. And then outside of that, is the court of the priests. Only the priests could come in. Only those who were of the Levitical line could come in. That's the holy place. And then you have outside of that the court of the Jews, which was really the court of the men. The Jewish males could only come in there. And then finally outside of that was the court of the women. And, and that would be for someone like Mary could come to this part of the temple. And this is apparently where they're at when Simeon meets this, the Lord in this outer court. And they bring him in. And when he arrives, Simeon immediately recognizes, apparently because the Holy Spirit reveals to him who this is, and he takes the child and begins to bless him. And his blessing is recording for, recorded for us in verses 29 through 32. And Simeon begins by talking of his own death. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So he's talking about himself here, your bondservant. Now I can die in peace because I've seen what you've promised that I would see. I have now seen the Messiah. And now that He has, notice what He says uh, in, in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He's talking about here the significance of the Messiah, that Christ has come to save His people from their sins. He will be the glory of Israel, just like His name suggests, right? He saves. God 
saves. This is Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. And He will be a light to the nations. It's not just the people of Israel that Jesus will be a glory of, but also to all the nations. He'll be a glory to, to all the nations, a light to all the nations. The response by Mary and Joseph is recorded for us in verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. We'll talk more about this, but it seems to me that that they start to forget the importance of who Christ is. And I think as he gets older, it's hard to see that that he is the Messiah. It's hard to recognize who this is. We, We often think that Mary and Joseph just remember that time with the angel and these great revelations that they received. And then throughout his life, they're telling Jesus about who he is and they're, they're protecting him from other people or, or, or whatever. And, um, and I think that, that, um, that, that they start to forget who Jesus is and really don't fully understand when the angel tells them who he is. We'll see that more here in the next event that we're going to read. So Simeon goes on in verses 34 and 35, continues to bless this child. And he goes on to say that the child will be a polarizing figure. He will be responsible for the fall and rise of many, according to verse 34. He will be a person of opposition. At the end of verse 34, he is assigned to be opposed. And at the end of verse 35, to the end that, that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And I would say whether good or bad, they're going to be revealed based on this person, Jesus. And he's also going to be a cause of grief for the righteous. Notice this phrase in verse 35. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. Here, I think he's talking to Mary, uh, speaking of, but he's making a reference to how Jesus will die. That Jesus is going to be pierced and Mary is going to be pierced in her soul because of how He dies. The grief that she's going to experience because of His loss of life. Obviously, by this time, By the time of Christ's death, Joseph has probably already died since we have no record of him being around. So the point is is that Christ will be the means by which people's hearts are exposed. He will be a polarizing figure. He will be the cause of the rise and fall of many people. Well, we have this, this next person who also recognizes the Messiah, and that's Anna, the revelation of Christ to Anna, verses 36 to 38. Not only did Simeon recognize the Messiah, but also Anna. And Anna is a very interesting figure. She was a prophetess who was 84 years old. And her job as a prophetess, just like all of the prophets in the Bible, was to speak on behalf of God. That was her job, to understand what God's revelation was and to speak on His behalf. And the text tells us that she was married for seven years. Look at the end of verse 36. She was advanced in years and had lived... So now we go all the way back to the time when she was married. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. So she was married for seven years and then probably for 60 plus years she had been a widow. And she spent her time in the temple. Look at verse 37. At the end of the verse, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayer. This could mean that she actually had a room in the temple court, in the outer court, where she lived and, uh, and, and worked. But more likely, it's the equivalent of what we would say today, and that is that a person is at the church every time the doors are open, or they're always at the worship services, right? And that seems to be what, what is going on here, that, that she has a clear devotion to God. Either way, if she's living there or if she's just coming there all the time, 
the point is, is that she is clearly devoted to God. And she's looking for, like Simeon, the consolation of Israel. And God reveals to her that He has come. And so she comes and meets the child. And when she sees the child, she praises God and continues to speak to other people on behalf of Him. Look at the end of verse 38. And continue to speak of Him to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So apparently, she's probably at a little corner of the temple and she's speaking on behalf of God and then Jesus comes. And she goes and meets Jesus and then she turns and says, this is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the salvation of Jerusalem. So, we see Jesus as a young boy, uh, as, as a baby, really, set apart for the work of God. We also see Him set apart for the work of God in verses 39-52. to 52. Verses 39 to 52, Jesus is set apart for the work of God as a young man. First, we see his growth as a young man when they had performed, verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So, after they have had done what was necessary in order for Mary to be ceremonially clean and to set Jesus apart, for God as the firstborn male. They head back to Nazareth. And then we have the growth of Jesus recorded for us in verse 40. And uh, we have a similar situation in chapter 1, verse 80, where John the Baptist's growth is recorded. But there, the difference is there's no mention of God's favor upon him. Not that John was not favored, but it shows that Jesus is greater than John, which is, I think, one of Luke's points points throughout this uh, first part of the Gospel record. And during this time, when they had gone back to Nazareth, you remember the Magi uh, would have come to visit them and they also would have taken some time to, to go to Egypt in order to escape death. Okay, Luke doesn't record that for us, but, but that's because it's not part of his point. We see Jesus in the temple in verses 41 to 51. So let me read that section for us beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed to be supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. The most important event of Jesus' life as a young man is recorded for us here. The reason I know it's most important is because this is the only record we have of anything besides his birth and his life as a baby. And so Luke records for us this significant event in the life of Jesus. And so what we want to do tonight is we want to understand why Luke recorded this specific story. 
of all the things that could have been recorded about the life of young Jesus, why record this one? Well, we see in verse 41 that Mary and Joseph are devout Jews again. Again, we start to see that Jesus grows up in a, in a great home, really. Uh, we had seen this in verse 21 to 24, bringing their sacrifices to the temple and so on. And uh, we also learn that he is 12 years old. Any 12-year-old children in here? I hoping Bobby or... Uh, is Bobby 12? No. How old is he? Nine. Not even close. All right. But Julia is going to be 12 this year. And uh, anybody else have ever been 12? Anybody? Okay. Within the last 10 years? No. Uh, yeah. It's been a long time, right? So, um, but, but, uh, but that gives you an idea. So Julia is about 12 years old. That's about how old Jesus was at this time. And... Uh, Joseph and Mary leave Jesus behind unknowingly in verses 43 and 44. They apparently traveled with a caravan of people, according to verse 44, which included relatives. So it's very easy to understand for us how they could possibly do something like this because the first thing we could think is, how could you forget the Son of God right, in the, in the, in the city? But, but they would have relatives, and so maybe Jesus was staying with his cousins while he was in the city, Maybe Mary thought that, you know, as parents how this works, Mary thought that Joseph was keeping track of him and Joseph thought that Mary was keeping track of him and no one was keeping track of him. Um, well, they, they uh, attempt to search for him in verses 45 to 48. Now, in verse uh, 46, we read that after three days they found him in the temple. But what we need to recognize is that they weren't searching in the city for three days. Remember, they had gone how far away before they realized He was gone? A day's journey, right? According to, to um, verse 44, they went a day's journey. So it would take a day before they forgot, before they recognized what happened, and then a day to get back, and then a day in the city to try to find Him. And they finally find Him in the temple. Look at how Mary speaks to Him in verse 48. And you mothers, I think, can really recognize her sentiment here. When they saw him, they were astonished. Astonished, And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. We were worried sick about you. Where, where were you? Now, before we see what the main point of this story is, I need to a- answer this question that you might be thinking. And that is, it appears as if Jesus is disobeying his parents. And so we need to, we need to look at the text and see if, if he is. Obviously, our first answer to that is, of course he's not, but we need to see this from the text. Look at verse 51. And he, Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth. And notice this, how this is worded by Luke. And he continued in subjection to them. And Mary treasured all these things in her heart. So this shows us that Jesus did not stop subjecting Himself, submitting Himself to His parents. There was not a time in this event where we can point the finger at Jesus and say, you disobeyed. He didn't disobey here. Now, apparently it was, um, it, it was something that, that He did and may, obviously He knew where He was going to be. Uh, one one uh, commentator suggests He did what was wise. When He was left behind, He went to a public place where there would have been respected people and waited for his parents to return. And that would be uh, a wise way to do it. I don't know if that's all what was in his mind as he was doing it, but the point is, is that there is no, uh, there's no fault that we can put on the person of Jesus based on verse 51. He continued in subjection. Of course, not to mention all the rest of Scripture that said that he was without sin. 
So now that we've done that, let's think for a minute how Luke got his facts about Jesus. Because remember, here's what we're trying to figure out. Why did Luke put this story in the Scriptures? What is so significant about this story of Jesus at the age of 12? Okay, so in order to to think through that, think how Luke would have got his facts about the life of Jesus. Was Luke an apostle? No. Okay, so one of the expectations by the early church fathers in order for a book to be a part of the canon of Scripture, the New Testament canon, is that the author had to be what? An apostle or a close friend of the apostle, right? So, so which apostle was a close friend to Luke? Paul, right? Luke traveled with Paul for, some people say, up to 20 years. And so he knew Paul very well. Paul would have seen the risen Christ. He was an apostle. And how would Paul have heard about this story? Right? Paul likely wasn't alive or wasn't in a position where he would have been at the temple at this time. It, it, there, there are several possibilities of how Paul would have heard about this. Maybe one of the rabbis who was there at the time remembered this young boy and said, it is amazing the sorts of questions that he is asking. But more likely, Paul heard it from Jesus himself when Jesus appeared to Paul and spent time with him as Paul is, is, is learning the way of, of uh, the Christian faith and seeing how that uh, squares with the Old Testament Scripture that Paul would have known very well, likely Jesus would have heard of, or, or Paul would have heard of at that time. Certainly it could have been that Luke had done some research by asking Mary or some of the other disciples uh, so we don't know exactly how Paul or how Luke got this story, but the point is, is that likely this story comes from Jesus, and the point is not about his obedience. It's not about his parents' confusion. It's not about parenting techniques and how we need to make sure that we always know where our kids are. But here's the point of the story. Look at verse 49. Jesus' words, and he said to them, "Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know?" that I had to be in my Father's house. This is the, the key to understanding the significance of the story. He says, why were you looking for me? I had to be in my Father's house. Now, if you have a New American Standard, you'll see that the word house is italicized, which means what? Okay, it's not in the original Greek. Okay, so when you translate from another language, I mentioned this multiple times, and if you studied languages, you understand this, there is no one-for-one translation for every single word in another language. You have to sometimes supply words in order to make sense of a sentence. And that's what the, the English translators are doing here by putting italics words, and they're helping you to see that that's not in the original Greek, that there is no translation. Um, the Greek little, literally reads like this. Look at your text and, and see uh, the, the second part of verse 49. Here's how it literally would be translated if we did it word for word. Did you not know that in my Father's I have to be? Okay, so that's why, you see why the New American Standard supplies a word? They have to figure out what, what is Jesus talking about here? Because in the Greek, it doesn't make sense to us. Now, to the Greeks, it would have under, they would have understood what the possessive adjective was, and they do that based on understanding the context. That's what our translators would have done. The translators look to what's going on and where Jesus is. Where is He? He's in the temple. And so it makes sense for Him to say, didn't you know I had to be in my Father's house? But that's not how Mary and Joseph would have heard Him. In fact, the King James Version understands a different word, not house, but what? Business, 
right? I had to be about my father's business. That's where you hear that phrase from. I had to be about my father's business. So they, they think that he's doing his father's work. So both of those are, are legitimate um, uh, possibilities for what Jesus could be, could be saying here. But I think the fact that there is no noun here, you know, we have this adjective, this possessive adjective, I had to be in my father's, and he doesn't give, he leaves it ambiguous. And I think he does that in order to veil to his parents, in a way, who he really is, and to the people around who are listening. So here's how it would have sounded. Uh, Mary says, where were you? We Your father and I were looking for you. And here's what Jesus says. I had to be in my father's or about my father's. And so she might be thinking and the people around might be thinking that he's doing something that Joseph had told him to do or something that Joseph would have been okay with. That's not what he's saying. And that's why it says, look at verse 51. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Look at verse 50. They did not understand the statement. When did you say that he should be here in the temple? When did you say that he would be about, if you use the King James, about his father's business? And yet Jesus is talking about someone else. He's talking about a different father, isn't he? And we know that because of how the New American Standard translates it. They put a capital F showing us that he's talking about whom? He's talking about God. And so Jesus is saying something very important about himself. And he's saying something that no Jew in their right mind would ever do. And that is calling God their own father. Jews would not do that. They would say, our father, like Jesus prays, and he gives that example, our father who art in heaven, that is completely legitimate. But for a Jew to say, my father, and refer to God, would be blasphemous because that is saying that you are the son of God. Here's what Jesus is saying. By the way, the reason I know that is because Whenever the word Father is used in the Old Testament to refer to God, it's used 12 times. Every time that it's used to refer to God, it's either talking about Abraham's father, speaking of a whole nation, it's referring to God, or, or they say it in terms of our Father. But never does anyone in the Old Testament ever say, My Father, referring to God. And so when Jesus says something, He's saying something very important here that his, even His parents don't understand. I had to be about my father's business or in my father's house doing what my father told me to do and they don't see it. They miss the point. In other words, I am exactly where my father wants me to be. Think about that. If that's the response, we were looking all over for you. Your father and I had no idea where you were and Jesus says, I am exactly where my father wants me to be. And Joseph is thinking, what? I, I wouldn't want you to be here. And, and Mary's thinking, why would Joseph want you to be here? That's not who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about where God wants him. Well, in verse 52, we have his growth recorded for us. And this has always fascinated me, uh, this verse here. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. We think of Jesus as the Son of God, knowing all things. But remember, a lot of these things are veiled to him because He's taking on human flesh. Some of these things are, are being revealed to Him by the Father or by His, his uh, Sonship as God. But he, he is growing in wisdom just like any other boy would grow. And I wish I had time to, to, to go through 
uh, some of the implications of that. Uh, but I have an excellent article for you to read, and it's on the back. There's a, there's a podium in the back. As you walk out, grab a, a copy of Dr. Schnellberger's article on Jesus and his growth. And it is just very provocative in the sense that it causes you to think about what Jesus was like. Because we tend to think that Jesus, you know, never cried. You know, he was the perfect baby in that he never cried. Well, he would have to cry, right? He, he would never stumble. He would know how to do everything right away. His math skills would be amazing from the very beginning. Uh, and if you take it that to the extreme, you'd have to say that Jesus could talk from the very beginning when he, you know, he never learned to talk. You would have, if you took it to the extreme, I'm adding to this article, but, and I'm going on longer than I wanted to, but, but obviously um, you could say that he never learned to walk, but, but obviously he would learn to walk just like any other child. And maybe not, obviously, but read that article and I think that'll shed some light on that. And, and what that teaches us, what this verse teaches us, is something that we don't think about very often. That is that Jesus was fully human. That He had to learn just like any other child. Now, obviously, at the same time, He is fully God. So, in some sense, He, he understands something. And, and I think His Godness reveals things to His humanness. But, um, but, but there is no indication that Jesus knew everything from birth. And that's why we have a verse like this. That, that he grew in wisdom, that he had to w- learn to walk and talk just like any other baby, and he had to learn to do math and to spell. John MacArthur puts it this way, that there were times when his omniscience was on display and other times when it was veiled by his humanity according to what the Father desired. And I think that's a helpful way of thinking about Jesus and both his his godness and his manness, so to speak. All right, a couple points of uh, in closing observations. Number one, Jesus is both man and God. What's amazing about this young life is that that we see a lot of just ordinary things that he's circumcised, that he's named on the eighth day, that that he's consecrated to the Lord. This is something that any Jewish boy would have experienced as well. But at the same time, we also see the extraordinary and the unexpected. We have Simeon and Anna ready to meet Him, looking for the consolation of Israel, looking for the salvation of Jerusalem. And we also see this uh, you know, thing getting separated from His parents, something that might be ordinary and expected of, of any child. Uh, but then we see something extraordinary, that He amazes these teachers, that He's asking these really good questions and listening very carefully, trying to learn. This illustrates for us that Jesus is both man and God. And, and He is a man who is ordinary in every way, but He's not an ordinary man. He is the Son of God. And the, the importance of His humanity cannot be underscored enough. He had to be human to be like us in every way in order to suffer for us. He had to be human in every way so that He could, so that he could be our high priest. Now you might think, well, to be human is to err, is to sin, Right? But is that true? Is, is, is to be human, to be sinful? You think of anyone besides Christ who was human and was not sinful. Adam, before the fall, right? No. See, to err is not to be human. It is To err is to be fallen human. Jesus is coming and showing us what the ideal human ought to be. And He's saying, listen, I am God and I'm going to make you, in many ways, like me without sin. And that will come when we have our bodies uh, resurrected and glorified. 
And so Jesus had to be human in every way. And it doesn't require Him to sin in order to be human in every way. That's the point I'm trying to make. Okay? Because Adam, we would, no one would say that Adam was not human in every way before the fall. Was he? Was he human in every way? Absolutely. Okay? But, but the fall is what, what changed him and set our, all of humanity on a course uh, towards, towards depravity and death. But Jesus came to reverse that. So Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And we don't have time to explore that anymore this evening. So let me look at our second point, or, or suggest our second point, is that is, beware of spiritual drift. Beware of spiritual drift. Mary has seen, if you think about it from this time, the time of Jesus is 12 years old, Mary has seen some pretty extraordinary things in the last 12 years. But it is clear in a couple places in this passage that she doesn't fully understand what is going on. She's pondering things in her heart. The text says she and Joseph don't understand. They, it's not that they don't see what's happening. It's they don't, don't understand the significance of what this is. What is Simeon talking about? That he's the glory of Israel, the light of Israel, the glory of the nations. And um, so I don't think they understand the full significance. In chapter 2, verse 33, they were amazed at what was being said about him. Chapter 2, verse 50, they did not understand the statement. So the fact that Mary is confused about what Jesus has come to do shows us that without regular revelation and proper meditation, even the best of believers can quickly become blinded to the things of God. Can you imagine that Mary would not see the significance of who her own son was? Now remember, Mary had seen some very clear signs prior to his birth. But over these last 12 years, guess how many signs she likely saw? We have no record of any signs that she saw that Jesus was the Christ. I came across an illustration of this point of kind of forgetting some of the details that were once so vivid in our minds. And it reminded me of how much detail I had forgotten about the birth of my own children. At the time, when each child was born, it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. And, and I could tell you about all the details, the contractions, the trip to the hospital, the waiting, the incident of near fainting, the discussion of names, the excitement of the baby's arrival. And if you ask me about those details today, I could give you bits and pieces. I could tell you parts of the story, but I couldn't speak in detail about each of them. And I'm talking about each child. They all kind of run together for me. I, I remember certain things about each one, but, but I don't remember all of the details. Mary had been visited by an angel prior to the birth of Jesus, but that was it. It's all the revelation she got besides Simeon and Anna. And so life has gone on without incident, fairly ordinary, and what's happened in these past 12 years as a mother? She's had several other children, right? And, and these other children and their details of their birth are starting to make the details of Christ's birth a little fuzzy, I think. That, yeah, she had a general idea of what happened and she remembered that the angel visitor, but it really couldn't have been this significant. I mean, I, I'm looking at him in comparison to the other children. He seems like a normal kid. He, he doesn't glow or anything. And, and, and we might think, well, you would never forget the details 
of something like that. But, but I think that, that over time, those details became fuzzy because of lack of proper revelation and lack of meditation on what had happened. And so the point is, is that if someone so close to Jesus can be confused about what He came to do, is it not possible that we could be susceptible to spiritual drift? Is it not possible that we could forget the significance of what Jesus came to do? The drift from understanding that Jesus came to die to an understanding that Jesus came to meet all of my felt needs is very subtle. The drift from understanding that the purpose of the church, think about it in terms of the church, is to glorify Christ with the making and maturing of disciples, that can easily drift into understanding that the purpose of the church is to entertain, it is to help me pay my bills, it's to scratch my social itches. And, and so our responsibility is the same, I think, as Mary's, and that is we must regularly expose ourselves to the revelation of God's Word and constantly meditate on its truth. Otherwise, when God reveals Himself, when God shows Himself through His Word, we can be like Mary and Joseph and say, I don't understand what is going on right now. We need to constantly be exposed to the revelation of God's Word and meditate on His truth or we will lose sight of what is the main thing in the Christian life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would guard us from spiritual drift, that we would not forget what the main thing is in our life as a Christian, that is, the resurrected Jesus who is coming again to redeem us fully. And we do not forget the main thing, the main reason that we are here as a church, to make immature disciples who are growing up into all aspects into Him who is our head, even Christ. And that we don't think that the church is designed for us primarily to meet all of our felt needs, but it is designed to bring glory to our Savior who died for it. And so we pray that You would help us to regularly expose ourselves to the revelation of Your Word as we join together with these believers in this body and as we uh, reflect on those in our time away from here and in our time here that we would meditate on these truths so that we do not fall away. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.